Welcome, Goldmine readers and now listeners. This is Pat Prince, editor of the magazine Goldmine, and welcome to the last Goldmine Magazine podcast of the year, 2017. Uh, this podcast will run an interview with Dolores O'Riordan of the Irish rock band The Cranberries. I interviewed Dolores before she was about to come here to the States, and unfortunately, uh, health-wise, the band had to cancel their U.S. tour um, because of Dolores' ongoing back problems health-wise. Um, but in 2017, the band did release something else, which is an album uh, with new acoustic versions of their classic hits and also three new songs. And they're all featuring a string quartet from the Irish Chamber Orchestra. And I, I should say specifically uh, the acoustic version of Linger, uh, it gives the song more of a classic rock flavor than a power pop rock hit. And, uh, I, you know, I like Linger, but one of my favorite songs is also Zombie, uh, which also comes out nice here as well, which to me is a is a very poignant song. Um, not one of romantic whimsy like whim- Linger, but uh, more something that talks about basically um, you could be, it could be any era any age, and that song will still come off uh, with a certain poignant flavor. Uh, The main songwriters, Dolores and guitarist Noel Hogan, they just have this natural chemistry with their songwriting together. And Hopefully another album, will, uh, brand new material, will come soon by them, hopefully in 2018. Um, Like I said, they never got to the States uh, in 2017. Um, So hopefully... um, they will come in 2018 with some new material, and I see Dolores has already produced a song for a Christmas special on Irish Irish TV. So uh, she is back, you know, songwriting, doing you know, writing songs again, being active. But first up, we're, Warren Kurtz and I will interview the author Ray Paget about his new book called "Cover Me: The Stories Behind the Greatest Cover Songs of All Time." And Warren Kurtz is, uh, you might be familiar with him, obviously, the Goldmine contributor who does wonderful vinyl record B-side columns called Fabulous Flip Sides and In Memoriam Flip Sides. Um, he, he's been uh, doing work for Goldmine for about two years now. And I'm sure there's something, uh, the flip side stuff is wonderful. I'm sure it's a, something a publisher should consider in the future. Uh, but we will run our interview with Ray Paget after this quick message. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine. The Music Collector's Magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. I want to uh, welcome Ray Paget. Uh, he is the author of Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest songs of all time. Ray, welcome. And Ray, when did you get the idea for this book? When did it come about? Um, it came The book specifically, I got the idea maybe four years ago. I've been running a blog also called Cover Me for 10 years. Yes. And people had always said, you should do a book. And, uh, you know, but I said, I said it was too broad of a topic. And I always would say, like, you know, you wouldn't ask someone to do a book about original songs without any more, huh. you know, um, without any more focus. But then I had the idea of instead of writing about cover songs as this big nebulous, amorphous genre, what if I drilled down on, you know, 20 or so specific cover songs and through those tried to tell the story of Right. Them. Yeah, because cover songs can go on forever, right? You have one artist doing a cover song. And then you have another artist doing a cover of that cover song. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, there's a few chapters like that in the book where it's like a chain of from one to the next to the next. One that comes to mind is Unchained Melody, the, you know, the Righteous Brothers. And then you had U2 do a cover of this as well. And uh, everyone thinks that uh, a particular artist, that was their original. But they are wrong. Um, I mean... We all we all have that right. We all thought this song was written by a certain artist, and then we discover no, that's not the case, right? Oh, absolutely. That Unchained Melody is a chapter in the book, and you're right. It, and it, even that, even the Righteous Brothers cover is not a cover of the original. It's a cover of a cover they heard of right. the original, and then 
Killing Me Softly also in the book. That's how, you know, Roberta Flack covered Laurie Lieberman, and then the Fugees, 20 years later, covered Roberta Flack. So there's definitely, I'm, the funny thing is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the quote-unquote expert on cover songs, but even I am still constantly being surprised by, you know, well-known songs that I've known for years that I did not realize were covers, even, you know, up to, up to, up to now. I still get shocked sometimes. If you had to take a Why guess, you... which musical artist do you think has been covered the most? Um, it'd be in terms of popular music, um, the Beatles and yep. Bob Dylan. Yep, exactly. Obvious that there's some there's some statistic which it's a little hard to verify, but that yesterday by the Beatles is the most covered song, you know, like twentieth century. Interesting. Um, and summer summertime by Gersh, you know, Gershwin song that's yeah. up there too. Warren, you were gonna you were gonna yeah, you know. I was going to specifically speak about summertime. You know, you uh, in your introduction, you talk about this 1966 uh, exciting cover uh, of Summertime, which uh, you and I, Ray, never heard it in '66. We heard it later on. So tell me, right. tell me about that. And you heard it from a, on a station that you wouldn't expect to hear a song like that. No, it was it was pretty surprising. This was uh, ten years ago in college, and this is the song that started me on my whole journey. I was listening to. Bob Dylan, for a year or two um, around that time, had a radio show that he hosted on uh, Sirius Radio. And every week he would play songs on a theme. It was called Theme Time Radio Hour. So one week the theme was summer, and he plays this cover of Summertime. And, you know, I knew the song Summertime really well. Everyone does. You know, Summertime is living is easy. But I don't. the only versions I'd heard were, you know, sort of slow, languid, torch song, you know, beautiful. But he plays this song by um, Billy Stewart soul singer and it's fast and there's horn <laughs> solos and drums and scatting and i listened to it and i, I th literally thought to myself you know i didn't know that you could do this i didn't know you could take lyrics and change the music that much mm. and so i said what other what other songs are like that and that's what started me down this path well speaking about summertime you cover another summertime song you know in our january issue of goldmine um we feature blue cheer who did a uh heavy metal psychedelic version of Summertime Blues in 1968. And then The Who did their live version uh, from Live at Leeds in 1970. So uh, tell us more about that and what, what Roger said uh, using the word bloke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah, it was, uh, so it was an interesting, so I talked to Roger Dalsey for maybe an hour about it, and it was really interesting because it was, he was basically talking about how Summertime Blues sort of was emblematic of the difference between him and Pete Townsend. You know, by, by 1970, Pete Townsend was writing rock operas and, you know, really complex and intricate songs, whereas Roger Dulce's like more of like an old-school rock and roll guy. Mm. So he's like, I just want to, you know, sing these songs. And he said, um, the bloke quote, he said something, uh, paraphrasing, but about how, you know, the Who were a blokes band, and it was all blokes in the audience, and so he wanted to, like, you know, rock out these really loud, fast, punchy songs, um, live particularly, to sort of counteract the you know, intricate whimsy of like Tommy or something. And which is, you, you know, know, that that's pretty, I mean, it's pretty accurate. It's uh, kind of more of a bloke's band than a girl's band. It's somewhat accurate, but not totally. <laughs> <laughs> he said that's how he felt looking out at the, uh, yeah. the crowds in those days. It's funny, he wasn't even saying it like it was a bad thing. It was you right. know, sort of, <laughs> they're very, very frank and forthright, more than you might think. Yeah. And Live the Leeds, you know, what a wonderful album in 1970. Absolutely. You go to uh, Cosmos Factory when you talk about I Heard It Through the Grapevine, and then you go and sing about I Heard It Through the Grapevine, you go on with Gladys Knight, and the one with Gladys Knight, um, and I think about her doing If I Were Your Woman in 1970, um, I also saw her in Smokey Joe's Cafe uh, as a performer, and she did an intermission, and she was great with... Midnight Train to Georgia, the Farrah Fawcett connection is something I certainly didn't know. <laughs> no, yeah, me neither. Um, I, that one came about about halfway through the book. I discovered that. So it's this sort of, it actually ties into what Pat was saying earlier about these songs that go through several iterations. And the first iteration of that song was the songwriter, a guy named Jim Weatherly, was um, on the phone with, he was trying to call Lee Majors, a buddy, a football buddy of his, um, and his girlfriend, Farrah Fawcett, who, you know, not yet that famous, picked up. And they're just chatting, and she says something like, oh, yeah, um, you know, I'm packing up tonight. Um, I'm leaving on a midnight plane to Houston. 
And so he hears that and he says, that's the song. He writes the song, Midnight Plane to Houston, otherwise basically the same. Um, and then Sissy Houston um, comes along. She covers it, but she changes it to Midnight Train to Georgia. Her line is that her people weren't taking, tra- weren't taking planes, they were taking trains, and that you know her family was from Georgia, not Houston. Although my personal interpretation is that it seems weird to sing Midnight Plane to Houston when your name is Houston. That's kind of confusing. <laughs> so I have to think that yes. was somehow in there as well. But anyway, that was the first Midnight Train to Georgia, and then Gladys Knight came along a couple of years later. Very and interesting. It's, it's a great recording, too. Bob Babbitt is on bass. My daughter actually played with him. Um, and um, Robert Knight, who we featured in the magazine recently. So it's uh, – and speaking about the magazine, you know, in our magazine, we – Really digging deep with collectors. And another guy who's like that is Lenny Kay. You know, Lenny Kay put out nuggets and, you know, digging deep into some garage stuff Mm -hmm. and then providing backdrop to Patti Smith for her poetry. And I first heard Patti Smith um, on a Raymond Derrick album. Uh, The whole thing started with rock and roll, now it's out of control, on the song Wake Up Screaming. So when Horses came out, you know, her debut album, um, which had free money on it. I was, you know, very excited to, to get that. And, uh, and that starts off with, with a cover song that you mentioned, Gloria. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're right. And Lenny Kay is sort of the impetus behind that. Um, I interviewed him for the book. And, you know, it's, Gloria is a, per- a perfect intro to Patti Smith because a lot, you know, for a lot of people, first song on the first album, that was the first they heard of her. And it's basically a combo of, of Patty and Lenny. Patty Smith bringing the poetry, which is what she had been up until then, a poet, not a musician. And Lenny Kay being, as you say, sort of this, you know, guru of garage rock, knowing everything there is to know about, you know, psychedelic and beyond from the 60s. Hmm. And so that's what Gloria is. It's basically a Patty Smith poem combined with a cover of the Van Morrison song Gloria, um, sort of mashed together, which is, you know, a good synopsis of Patti Smith's whole career. Hmm. What a way to kick off that album. My goodness. Um, so, yes, I bought that album, you know, in a record store in Cleveland, and ultimately I ended up working in a record store in Cleveland. And being in Northeast Ohio in 1978, Warner Brothers signed these odd guys from Akron, Devo. And, <laughs> talked, and we, we played the video in, in the... Uh, record store, Mr. Mother's Ball is in the video. I met Mr. Mother's Ball on the uh, party. We had an album release party at, at the club, the Agora. Patty O'Donoghue was uh, part of the cover, the opening act uh, before she was with the waitresses. She was with a band called Shy Pig. And um, it was great. So I met Devo and Mr. Mother's Ball was so proud of his boys. He says, oh, they've got enough for a second album. And he was dressed, you know, looked like a banker, dressed in a suit. And uh, Devo was not dressed that way. So uh, it took some <laughs> satisfaction in even Mick Jagger's uh, comments. Yeah, there's, um, well, first of all, I'm trying to remember, I'm pretty sure a couple of Mark's family is in the video, like including Mr. Mother's Ball, I think his mom too. But um, yeah, Mick Jagger, they, so the cover of Satisfaction was so, uh, so bizarre and strange that the label, sort of to cover their own bases, um, decided that they needed Devo to get Rolling Stone's personal approval, um, basically personal sign-off. So the label set up a meeting in this conference room in New York with Mick Jagger himself, and it's it, Mark and Daryl uh, Cassell told me the story, and it's sort of this amazing scene where Devo is sitting on one side of the conference table, Mick Jagger's on the other. You know, no one has heard of who Devo is at this point, so it's just super tense, super awkward. Mick Jagger looks hung over or half asleep or just basically staring at them without saying anything. They put a boombox on the table. They play the song. Mick Jagger just sits there in silence, staring at them. Then after about 30 seconds without saying a word, he stands up and starts dancing around the room. And that was, uh, that was all the sign-off they needed for their cover. <laughs> that is that just is, amazing. That is amazing. You know, the next chapter, you continue with Devo with, uh, with a song, a medley. That has Devo's Jocko Homo, which is the song that says, you know, are we not men? We are Devo. And then Inagata Ina Vida is in the middle of that medley. And then it ends with a version of My Generation with an accordion in the background and uh, from, from an album I enjoy. So, so tell us about uh, Pulpit on 45. 
Yeah, so that's uh, Weird Al Yankovic, his first of many, many polka medleys. He basically <laughs> does one per album. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's definitely one of those, it's one of the chapters in the book, like most of the ones we're talking about are more sort of obvious in, for inclusion. People are always like, why is Weird Al in this book on covers? And, you know, I think the reason is these polka medleys are sort of an interesting way into looking at a couple things. One is, as you say, he's covering all those songs you mentioned and maybe 10 more. There's like 12 or so songs per medley, and he has to license all of them. And it, it sort of goes into how, how you actually get clearance for a cover and how you pay for it, which in his case is very complicated and headache-inducing. Then the other thing that's interesting is that Weird Al is, of course, best known for parodies, not covers. And we talk about that, and I sort of my theory is that the parody is like the cousin to the cover in the sense that with the parody, you're changing the lyrics but keeping the music, and in the cover, you're keeping the lyrics but changing the music. Mm. Um, so we talked about that, and, ju and just, you know, Weird Al is one of the all-time great interviews. Um, <laughs> so he's going on tangents about, like, what, how he's crushing up fruit to approximate the sound effects of weasels being stepped on, and <laughs> all sorts of digressions like that to record these, these zany accordion polka medleys. He is something in concert. My daughter and I saw him uh, last year in concert for our, our first time. And it's so in between the costume changes, they show videos. And so there's a lot of different costumes doing, you know, a lot of these songs. And uh, it was it was quite the show. And, and, the, and the band that he's had, you know, for years, you know, John Bermuda Schwartz. I mean, these guys have been with him since uh, since that album, since uh, Weird Al in 3D. Yeah, they have. I spoke to I spoke to Bermuda, and he was saying, you know, you don't think of Weird Al as sort of a, a studio head as much. You think of him as a comedian, but he was talking about how just how like obsessive Al is about uh, the actual recording process, mm. and how you know even when they're coming up with sound effects of like ducks quacking or you know fart noises or something zany yeah. and stupid, he's like he's like meticulous about getting it right and doing a bunch <laughs> of takes to make sure the fart noise is the best <laughs> fart noise it can be. Oh, well, it's funny goodness. what goes uh, on, you know, trying to get all of this in order, like you said, uh, legally being able to cover the band, um, how, God, it must be so complex. And, uh, you know, you talked about changing the music, but not the lyrics. And then in Hound Dog, you have Elvis Presley changing the lyrics, correct? From Freddie. Yeah, Elvis Presley used changed lyrics although that's yet again a case where it's the cover of a cover the actual yes. people who changed the lyrics were not elvis it was freddie bell. bell and the bell boys yeah this sort of vegas vegas lounge act and, and elvis learned it from there and there's a uh, lieber and stoller who of course wrote, wrote the original had a funny quote where they you know they would always complain about how much they hated the new lyrics because you know all of a sudden they're talking about catching rabbits and they said that's ridiculous but then they used to later on every time they were passed about it they said you know, well, we hated those lyrics until the checks started coming in. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that really story. Yeah. 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 There's a great story um, about Beatles, uh, John Lennon, hating to do covers of black artists, um, especially when he was billed with other black artists on the on the concert uh, bill. Um, he Almost like he didn't think did did any know that covers are sort of like a tribute? Yeah, it was it was sort of interesting, especially given how many covers they did early on, including of many many you know R and B and other African American musicians. Right. But yeah, he said he sort of would, would feel embarrassing, like that, as if they didn't have uh, you know enough soul or something. Um, I, you know, I, oh, like, I, I see. I, I write about Twist and Shout in the book, and you know that was near the end of their sort of you know major covers moment. Um, and they're doing the Isley Brothers, and yeah, I mean, it's a great cover, but it's funny that he was so self-deprecating about it. Yeah, I can never see trying to cover James Brown. I mean, he's he's the man. No one could ever top him. So, yeah, I could see how have, not having enough soul, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter who you are as an artist. Uh, which leads me to my next question. Uh, which artists do you think are the hardest to cover to your ears? I mean, I, I know James Brown would probably be one of them. I mean, how could you match that? Um, it's interesting that the Beatles are often covered because they're thought of as the greatest band of all time, pop-wise, you know? 
I actually, I'm glad you said that because I, the first thing that jumps to my mind is in fact the Beatles. And mm. the reason is, which sort of holds for James Brown too and any number of other people, but if, it, if it's not only a great song, but the original recording is sort of, you know, iconic and definitive in some way, like yes. so many Beatles things are, where you don't just think of the Beatles songs as just like lyrics on a page, but you think of George's guitar intro and then, you know, what Ringo's doing. So, I mean, obviously plenty of people have done it well, but I think those, those sort of songs are very hard to cover as opposed to, for instance, Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen, yes. where the original recordings are... You know, uh, some people don't like the sound of Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan, and, you know, so it, it leaves a lot of uh, openings for other people to do different things with it. So actually, it, it, the Beatles do get covered a lot, which is impressive, because I think they're one of the hardest bands to, to cover well. Especially, well, you mentioned with a little help from my friends right. in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, I talk about, you know, Joe, Joe Cocker and just, you know, he's a good example of how you do it right which is that he doesn't, you know, slavishly copy the original, because you can't. The Beatles did it, you know, they did their version as good as you're going to do. Don't try to do their version, and he doesn't. He, I, you know, I spoke to Tony Visconti, who, at the, you know, now is a famous producer, but at the time was a lowly, you know, engineer just starting his career. And he was talking about how, you know, um, the producer, Denny Cordell, would send Joe Cocker into, you know, hours and hours and hours of singing the vocal just uh, over and over and over again till his voice was like raw and ragged just to destroy it, to give it that sort of power that you hear on the, on the <laughs> eventual recording. And there are certain songs that you would think a band like Nine Inch Nails would be very hard to cover, but the song Hurt is like a poem. And Johnny Cash, man, that was that's one of the all-time great cover songs, I think. Um, and what a video, too. To go with it there's a lot of pain there you know you could feel it <laughs> yeah that um so that was an interesting one to write because like i say i, I tried to tie things into trends in the music business and so that was a way to talk about music videos because as you say pat it's one of maybe i mean arguably the greatest video of all time certainly right. up there and um it, that's what the funny thing is i didn't realize until doing the research that that's what made the song a hit the song had come out months before mm you know, on the album, and it didn't do anything. No, it was sort of ignored. And the most interesting thing is Trent Reznor himself didn't get it. He heard Rick Rubin, you know, played him Johnny Cash's cover, and Trent Reznor had a line that said something like it, you know, it, it sounded like somebody stole my girlfriend, where in the sense that this is a very personal song for him, you know, is his, uh, very and, and Johnny Cash sounds, he sounds like Johnny Cash. Right. Um, so he didn't, he didn't get it all, but then when he saw the video, then he said, oh, now I get it, you know, and, he, and then, then his quote was like, it's not my song anymore, now it's his. And that's, that mirrored the reaction from the populace at large. It was not a hit at all for, you know, six months to a year when it came out. But then once that video started getting played, that's when all of a sudden, you know, it was, it was Johnny's last big hit. Yes. So what's your, next, what's, what's your next book? What do you have in mind now? Are you... Uh... Are you already thinking of a new book? Are you are you going to do? Um, are you going to continue this? Um, what are you thinking, Ray? Um, I'm, I'm I've got some ideas sort of percolating. That's my goal in the new year. Is you know I've been doing a bunch with this book. I wanted to give it a, a strong release, and then in January I need to drill down. There's a couple. Of mu they're all music. A couple don't have to do with covers. Um, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to do sort of a, a sequel, but not in the sense of here's just 20 more covers, because the goal of this book was really to tell the story, the definitive story of the cover song through these covers. Mm. So I don't want to just be like, oh, and here's a bunch more PS. But I'm thinking of, you know, if, if there's sort of a different angle to take on it, if it's focusing on a genre, like the history of soul covers or focusing on artists, Bob yeah. Dylan covers, you know, that could be sort of an interesting an interesting other way to approach the same subject but uh to be determined exactly what i land on there all right well keep well, yeah, in touch yeah yeah excellent thank you for this book we have it uh scheduled for a gold mine giveaway we've got uh two autographed copies which we appreciate and want to let the listeners know too there's uh you know we talked about a lot of songs uh on this podcast and there's there's five more from the book, the book as well there's respect take me to the river always on my mind I will always love you, make you feel my love, and then one that is uh, that I didn't know, Gin and Juice by a group called The Gourds, which is a Snoop 
doggy dog cover <laughs> and a story with it that goes with Napster. And boy, it's it's definitely worth reading and learning about. It's a lot of fun, Ray. Well, thank you, thank you, and that's that's one of my personal favorite chapters as well. So I'm glad you uh, spotlighted it. Good. Well, Ray, thank you so much, and we'll be talking to you soon. Well, thanks so Thank much for having course. me. Thank you. CygnusRadio.com presents Wingnut's Psychedelic Bubblegum Shop with your host, Ronald Webb. Hey, boys and girls. Remember those super fantastic fun times of yesteryear? I'm bringing you that sticky sweet guitar fuzz from all those years ago. Right here on CygnusRadio.com, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern. And rebroadcast Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Can you dig it? Hello. Hello, is that Pat? It is. Hello, Pat. Is this no, Dolores? How yes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Yes. But anyway, I I dig the new album, and I I gotta say, um, thank you. Yeah, I at first I was like, why are they doing this? But then when I heard it, I was like very impressed. Um, That's great, Pat. Yeah. And like like us. And and. I gotta say the orchestration by um was it the Irish Chamber Orchestra? Yeah. It adds a, a nice dimension to the music. It's it's a different way of hearing the songs that fans even a casual fan, which, you know, because you guys had so many hits, um, will like, I think, because they're familiar with it. They're familiar with the music. Yeah. That's right. And I think it it's sort of uh it updates it in a way where they they might uh, they might find new things about the songs. Do you do you do you agree? Yes, I think that they're more stripped back, you know, and they have a new life, and so it's like kind of getting a an old suit out of the wardrobe and sending it to the cleaners, and getting it cleaned, and then touching it up and putting new buttons into it and making it a bit shiny again. <laughs> What what brought on this reimagining of, of of the songs? How how did you um and how did you get involved with the the orchestra to begin with? Um. Well, do you know the American TV show The Bachelorette? Yes. Well, they were coming to Ireland to shoot the finale of The Bachelorette, and they asked if we'd perform "Linger." And of course, I never saw the show. I don't watch it. But I said, "Okay, that sounds nice." And it was in Christchurch. In Dublin, we did it. We did it with the chamber orchestra, and it sounded really nice. And it was the 25th anniversary of the Cranberries. We've been together 25 years at the mm. time. That was two years ago. So myself and Noel thought it might be nice to do an album with all the the songs, the catchy songs, you know, the hits and whatnot, and to do them with the chamber orchestra, and it would be something nice for the fans. And did. And everything was so everything went pretty smoothly as far as connecting it all together, huh? Yeah, it came together really quickly actually. I was surprised there was no hitches. And and all the band members worked with the orchestra in the studio? How did the process unfold? Well, first of all, we we all met up up at the University of Limerick mm. in the ICO um room, which is a really nice big room that was built especially for the orchestra. And we started um, playing together, but we found that we couldn't do it live off the floor because of the sound, you know, yeah. um, between all the instruments and the orchestra and then my microphone and everything bleeding down my mic, you know. Um, so what we did then was we got um, the drums and the bass and the guitars down, and then we sent that on to uh, the orchestra, the quartet, and they put down their part. And then they sent it to me, and I would sing over it. And uh, on a couple of a couple of occasions, then <clears throat> the band sent me just the bass, guitar, and drums, and I sang over that. Mm. And then afterwards, they put the strings over the vocals and the band. You know. Mhm. And the thought of doing everything acoustically, um, that came about naturally as well. Yes. Yeah. We just thought it might be nice to do. Uh, for the 25th anniversary, you know? Yeah, because I think, uh, you know, the acoustic guitar gives Linger a more classic rock flavor now than, 
I guess what you would call the alternative rock of the 90s. Yes, that's right. Because it it um it almost so- sounds like to me, I'm a big Rolling Stones fan. It sounds like Linger sounds more like a a Stones song they would be would be singing like uh in the 60s acoustically don't yes. ask me why but <laughs> yes we actually opened up for the stones you know oh you did i didn't know that we did in europe yeah we did about nine or ten gigs opening up for the stones and who else was on the bill was acdc brian johnson and co did you get to meet the stones yeah. and pick their brain at all or no well, Mick Jagger came into my dressing room, I remember, and I was sitting there with one eye made up and the other eye not made up, you know. And he just came in and he was very polite, very stifalarious, kind of, and he said hello to me, you know. And that was it. He just came in, said hello, nice to meet you. Um, is everything okay? Are you enjoying the tour? Is there anything I can help you with? And I said, no, and they were really nice, actually. A very nice band to open up for. They really look after their opening act, you know. Wow, that's very that's a that's pretty cool, yeah. Because yes. I, I I get that feel from the acoustic guitar, like um, just the way they kind of like laid down tracks, like on "Let It Bleed" or something like that. That linger uh, transformed a little bit into that sort of, yes. and uh, like I said, uh, not that I was skeptical when I first heard you were going to be redoing the songs. I thought, why? They're good as they are. But this really, um, uh, it's 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 rare that uh, you could take a song that was a hit and worked so well and uh, make it do the same again, basically. It's, <laughs> it's, yes. a, it's pretty rare. Yes, I think it turned out really nice. I think it sounds lovely. There's a lot of breathing space in there, you know. The sounds are breathing more, you know. Yeah. More air did more space, like. And I always loved the way you, um, and and a lot of bands, and this is like a little nuance, the way you'll you'll hum a melody, in within the song, and I think that's a nice subtlety. Um, you have that about your your talent. Uh, you know, there are other bands uh, that do it too, but not enough bands do that. They they don't add these little nuances and I think that's the difference of making a song good and and then turning it into great. Would you agree? Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, little subtleties like that can make a big difference, you know. Yeah, like for instance you know you know, if uh you do that uh on an overdub and zombie and, and other songs and it uh it does make the difference. Yes. And I got to say, I love the arrangement on Dreams, and uh, I hope you're not insulted if I say I think I prefer it more than it was when it was a hit. <laughs> I think yeah, it's... I think that, you know how the, the strings are plucking the guitar part? That yeah! That's very cool. Yeah. And um, we went into rehearsals already for a week there, uh, and they went really well, you know, I enjoyed singing with the quartet you know mm-hmm. and and with zombie i still get chills listening to that song no matter how it's yeah. arranged uh it's this mixture of melody with anger and uh it's almost heartbreaking poignant yeah. you know and to you yeah. what do you think makes that song so effective i think the lyrics are strong you know and they're short and direct, you know, very direct and very strong. And I think the chorus is very catchy, really. Mm. And and even though it was about a particular subject, like the IRA bombings, you know, this is the kind of song that the sentiment is still relevant no matter what place or time you're in. Um, yes. What's it been almost... Has it been uh, 25 years since that album? And... Um, I don't know if I got that correct, but I think that's correct. You're right. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's still relevant today with, you know, you know, this... Right. this of terrorism still very... Actually, probably more terrorism now than there was. 
globally there's an awful lot of terrorism, isn't there? There is, and um, you know how you put it in the song that it's um, it's so senseless, and I I think that uh, it's puzzling. It's puzzling why this stuff still occurs, and mankind never seems to learn from it. That's right. It's territorial greed and pointless stuff, really. It, it really is. And I think that you could play that song, you know, that song could become a hit again, easily. Um, yeah. In, in its new form. Yeah. Which I want to ask you, I know in the 90s, you, uh, the band itself got, like every other band, was called uh, the genre tag, alternative rock, modern rock. Did you ever like that uh, that term? I didn't mind it, actually. I thought it sounded pretty coolly, alternative rock label, um, because, you know, it was just, it wasn't mainstream rock. It wasn't like all the other rock. It was a little different. Yeah. So then it was alternative rock. I thought it was uh, suitable, really. But your songs had the sensibility and the catchiness to be, to be mainstream. Um, yes. And it, so may, I don't I don't even know if they use that term anymore. But <laughs> yes, I'm not sure what they say nowadays. I think we're in a sort of post rock era, if that makes sense. That's right, and I mean, these days it's all different now because you know um, I was just doing a few interviews there and I was saying how when I was young like um, the teenagers it was just all about your music you'd go in your bedroom and play your bands that you really liked but now it's all Facebook and Twitter and Yelp and Safari and Google and YouTube and all these things is where kids spend all their time you know so yep. the music the music world is completely different it's not a, a big priority like it used to be you know that's true I mean, there's I mean... so many alternatives where youngsters can spend their time past their time they have a lot of alternatives now it's not just like back then the video was very important that you made for your song because of mtv and mm. mtv was all about videos but now it's totally different what they you know um what they play on the um, music television shows you know it's reality tv that, that's right reality tv kind of took over didn't it it even took over our presidency yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, ju I just think that, um, it's where there is a, there is a pushback because our magazine Goldmine, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's always been about, um, it's been about music collecting too. And there is a return to the tangible, the vinyl is very, you know, of course it's never going to sell as big as, as it once did, but there's a resurgence of vinyl and that's right i had to get some for my daughter she actually got a, a record player and yeah. uh, she started collecting vinyl you know she's 16 like so i i could see that happening it was coming back in again it's getting fashionable yeah and it's like people want to connect or interact than just hearing this sort of ghost uh mp3 file um because i gotta tell you the truth sometimes i'll I'll uh, find something on a new band, and it's um, an MP3, and I love it, but I know nothing about the band. I don't know who, what the band members, what their names are, who sings or plays guitar, who produced it. I'm lucky if I even know, I get the name of the song, that's about it. Um, yes, that's right. It's not as personable, like here, it isn't. No, it's not. And don't you want want it like that? It's like anything else, like reading a novel. You, you want to be right. captured, right? Yeah. And uh, it's funny that you said, uh, you know, that the kids... Uh, I don't even... Were, were the Cranberries albums released on vinyl when they first came out? Or were we... Nine, in the, it was like the CD revolution, really, when... That's right. They did release some vinyl, because I see... Um... I see fans with them, you know, and I don't think there was a load of them, but I think a certain amount kind of collector stuff, you know. I think it's worth money probably because I know a lot of bands that were released in the early 90s and had vinyl, whether it be Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and your vinyl might might be worth something for the collector. So it's interesting. Yeah. They probably made a limited amount. Um, that's right. That's what they probably did. But anyway, going back... Um, 
Now, it's amazing to me that you guys were, for the maturity of these these songs, these hits, you were only 17 and 15. One of the members was 15, right? When you started writing yeah. these songs. That's just incredible yeah. because the maturity is beyond its years. I mean, you... You were writing lyrics about complicated relationships. Um, you know, you wrote Zombie. Um, do you look back and say, wow, we we really were ahead of our our age, our, our maturity there? What, what do you think? Yes. I suppose I was an old soul, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you find your... Um, how do you find your songwriting now? I mean... Do you find that, um, could you write a song like Dreams or Linger now? Could you, I mean, I'll get to the new songs after after you answer this, but what do you think? I don't think so. I think, you know, you only write a song like Dreams once in your life, and that was like the first love. Yeah. And then Linger is like the first time you really get your heart broken. And when you're, when you're a teenager, you're really hurt, like, and it's your whole life and stuff, you know? As you get, you get older, you know, you have kids and things change, you know, you're not all like so dramatic about relationships. You're a little bit more, you take things in your stride a bit more and... A little jaded, you know, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe you just get to that point where you're like, okay, here we go again. Another one, you know? <laughs> but, uh, I think that, yeah. yeah. When you're young, like, you're a lot more affected. Yes. I hear what you. happens in your life. I think when you get older, you're just like, you take each day as it comes. And, That's... you know, what's, you know, once you get a good night's sleep and you get through the day, you know, and you try to be positive and make the best out of what you have, you know? Yeah, yeah, very true. Because nobody really has a perfectly easy life. Everybody has ups and downs, you know? People have relationship problems, you know? When you have kids, you're worried about their health and their sanity, and you're worried about your children, how they'll get on in the world and how they'll find their way, and you know that they have so much ahead of them. You know, and I suppose these kind of things take over. And then with writing, like, I don't write as much as I used to. I used to write an awful lot when I was younger, but now um, I find writing is something that I do occasionally. I just, you know, put my mind to it and try and say, okay, I'm going to write something now and record it, but I don't have the same, like, um, need. I used to have a need to write, you know, when mm. I was a teenager. I had nothing else going on in my life, so I felt really compelled. I had to do it, you know. But now I feel like um, I do it sometimes, but I don't have the same feeling about it, you know. Things kind of fade away a little bit. Having said that, it doesn't mean that I not go through a phase of writing and feeling that I need to, you know. But uh, as you get older, it it can become harder to write, you know. Also, because you'll be going, I wrote something like this already, you know. I'm sure mm -hmm. I wrote a song like this already. You know, <laughs> you've written so many songs. It's hard to write something fresh and new. And the um, the excitement that you had when you were young and your the awe that you had, you know, it's, it's kind of gone. You do get older and you become less in awe. Mm interesting because but when you do write they're still very poignant mature songs because rupture and why are definitely um something that hits you um it's not fleeting these, these are songs that have the same kind of impact as uh the Cranz cranberries once did you know in and the beginning great. yeah it's very hard for me to know you know but, you know, as you get older, you're toying with your sanity and, uh, you know, depression and, yeah. you know, your parents die, you're dealing with bereavement yeah. and getting older and coming to terms with getting older. And you kind of wonder what it's all about, like what's life all about? You know, you just, you're born, you live, you get old, you die. <laughs> it's kind of like, right. you get a bit skeptical about it all, you know? It's like the Godfather song. What was it? Uh birth work <laughs> death yeah. <laughs> um yeah but but when i first heard these songs i was very impressed that um it's almost like okay getting older but 
that still works with rock and roll. Any um, any sort of experience in life, it's like any other yeah. piece of art. Where we used to think rock and roll was just for the young, it's uh, really not anymore. <laughs> it's <laughs> no, right? And I mean, the amount of artists that we've lost in recent years, Prince yeah. and David Bowie and like Michael Jackson and. You know, uh, a lot of those artists were still young. Yeah. They weren't really old, you know. They were young. And it just shows that you just never know how long you're around for. You know, like Chuck Berry was older. He had a long life. But but, uh, the likes of Prince and Michael Jackson, they were young. I didn't expect that. No. Or even Bowie. Our Bowie, he was still young as well. Like, he was only in his 60s. And he looked so healthy, like... Yes. He always looked very healthy and slim. And, you know, he looked the picture of health, you know. I I wouldn't have expected it. No, it, it, it just goes to show you that... Um, I see some of these um, stars that they don't look well. Um, there's smoking like three packs a day but they'll live to be a hundred and yet someone who takes care of themselves will um for some reason get ill it's very life is so strange like that um but i also want to say about your your songwriting i know you have this natural songwriting chemistry with with hogan and um it just seems so natural. Do you find that it's so different when you uh, you write a song on your own compared to having another person um, with you doing it? I think like that, uh, you know, I really notice the difference between what I write on my own and then when I collaborate with Noel, I can tell straight away, oh, that's a collaboration. Yes. And that's not a collaboration. Yes. That's one she did on her own. And it's because, you know, when I'm writing, I, I write the chords and, and I write the chorus and the verse and there's a bridge. Yeah. But with Noel, Noel sends me cards and uh, he sends them without a structure. He just sends a load of cards all written and he's just playing and playing. And then afterwards, we'll put a structure on it and I'll, I'll put down my melody and then my lyrics and put it together. But I find that there, there's a an obvious difference between what I write alone and what I collaborate on. Well, yeah, I mean, you and Noel have this. It's something that is rare, um, a songwriting partner. It, it, uh, it seems like everything you guys write together, it just clicks, man. It just clicks. It works. Yeah, we have a good chemistry. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think with with the fans now. They're going to be craving more. Um, I think, of course, your fans are going to enjoy something else, but I think that they're going to ask, when is a new mater- a new album with fresh material going to more fresh material going to come to be? Yes. So I started kind of. I just invested in a, a really nice kind of keyboard and uh, set it up. So I, I I wrote a couple there about a month ago. I just wrote two together, you know. And then I stop writing again and I start like going to the pool and going out walking and doing things like that. But then if I sit down and put my head down to it, I can write again, you know? Mm-hmm. And do, do you think... You have to put on that hat. Do you think for the fans you could say that there will be more Cranberries, new material, uh, a new I'd album? I'd say there will, yeah, because I've been writing and no one's yeah. been writing. So we're, hopefully that will be the next thing we'll do another one, you know? I think that's great because sometimes, you know, um, you know, artists, uh, you know, there's this, this, well, well, there's a creative obligation to the fans and uh, just to art itself. Um, (laughs) you know, I understand why bands, um, you know, they break up or they go their separate ways, but in the end, uh, when you have something special, um, life is short. You know, so <laughs> I hope yeah, to see yeah, the sure. cranberries continue for sure. I hope so, yeah. And one last thing, the album cover idea, is that some in sort of way an ode to No Need to Argue? Is it 
It's uh, I loved how it was. Uh, it just seemed like uh, you guys were thinking that you know, obviously something else is doing. You know, you're running uh, something on old tunes, but um, I thought it was kind of neat. It was like a tip of I the hat. Tonight, I yeah, to go back to the sofa. Well, <laughs> well, it was like you know, bury the hatchet and other, uh, um, you know, albums strayed from that kind of group look that you guys had. Um, but yeah. it's funny how you went back to the sofa. It was, yeah. it was a nice yeah. touch. Why not? You know, <laughs> and you said life short. Look, we're still here anyway. Getting older, being <laughs> a bit craggier. Craggy face, but sure. What what can we do? We're just getting old. <laughs> how 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 is the Irish music scene? Is it? Uh, I usually get dis- disappointed with the New York music scene. I don't think it's as good anymore. How how is the Irish music scene? Or do you find new bands uh, popping up or giving you know, advice to? A lot of bands. You know, there's a lot of bands coming out of those TV yeah. shows, like. You know those TV shows where bands audition. Oh, are you talking about like The Voice and stuff like that? Yeah. Oh boy. That's that, that <laughs> very popular over there. And so, but I there's always um, a band or two in Ireland, a new band that get very big in Ireland, but they don't necessarily break outside of Ireland. Right. That'll often happen. That's strange because I, uh, I, I'm not I'm not savvy on it. You know, I don't really know what's happening there music wise. You know, because I'm not there a lot. And then I don't really listen to Top 40 radio. Was Were there bands, like, uh, for you, like, that, were you two, like, um, supportive of you guys? Or did you get to connect with them at all? Or, or no? Yes, they were. When we came back from America the first time around, we met them. And we kind of hung out with them for a little while. And then I became friendly with um with some of the members um they came to my house and that kind of thing you know um Barry came to my house and um I went out one night with them for a sleepover to a hotel we spent some time together and then it just dissolved I haven't seen them uh personally I'd say for about 10 15 years you know well that would be a perfect for a little while, for a little while we were friendly there you know around the time we were really successful All right, Dolores, thank you for taking the time. Okay, you're very welcome. That was Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries. Thank you, Dolores. And that interview was taken this year, um, just before they uh, were about to go on a U.S. tour. Unfortunately, they weren't able to do that tour. But um, pick up the 2017 album, uh, Something Else It's Called. It's worth it. It's a reimagining of all their hits. And again, the band, uh, hopefully that we'll see them in 2018. And well, it's been a great podcast. It's been a great year. We'll see you in 2018 and pick up the new issue of Goldmine. It's on the newsstand now. Donovan is on the cover and it's about psychedelic rock. We'll have something next podcast about that. And it's at Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and select record stores. You can go to goldminemag.com and check out where. And you can also go to goldminemag.com and find out how to how to subscribe, how to get a percentage off of your subscription as well. All you got to go is go there and scroll down. Well, thank you again. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine. We'll see you next time. Thank you.